If you're joining with us for the first time, we have been in a series looking at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this fledgling group of believers in the first century city of Corinth. We've been studying this book for a very long time, and uh, I just want to say thank you for traveling with us on this journey for quite some time. We are now reaching the final chapter in our journey, so that's pretty cool, isn't it? Kind of got there all the way through the end. And, um, but let's pray together before we jump into God's Word. Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that you would speak by your Spirit, make us attentive to your voice, expand our own imagination, expand our hearts, expand our lives, God, so that we could live into the fullness of your kingdom and of the way of life that you've called us into. And we ask these things in Christ's name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, so this morning, I don't know if you recognize this from the text that you heard read for us, but the text is about the collection. And so today we're going to be talking a little bit about money. Now, money is uh, kind of a a, a tricky uh, topic to talk about, and so if it's okay, I'd like to begin like this. Uh, I'd like to begin by inviting you to reach into your pocket or into your purse and pull out your wallet or some sort of thing that you... um, Yeah, carry money in. So why don't you go ahead and whip that out if you can. So I want you to take out your wallet, maybe a credit card or a checkbook or whatever, and I just want you to hold it in your hands for a minute. And you can caress it if you want. (laughs) But you hold in your hand the temple of the 21st century. And so uh, we, we, this is the place where many of us worship, and it is... uh, It dictates how many of us feel about ourselves, our identity, our own well-being. It it is what gives us security. And for Jesus, this is a big trust issue. And so I want to invite you to do something that I saw another pastor named John Ortberg invite his congregation to do. I thought it was great, and uh, I I thought this this is really good. I, I want you to take your wallet or your credit card or whatever, and I want you to hand it to the person next to you. It's a big trust issue. Your spouse doesn't count. And now what I'm going to do, now what I want to do is I want to take an offering. (laughs) And I want you to give like you have always dreamed of giving. (laughs) No, thank you for doing that. You can go ahead and give it back. So we've been looking together at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in Corinth. And throughout the course of this letter, he covers a wide variety of issues. And now as we come to the end, he raises the topic of what he calls the collection And look at what he says in chapter 16, verse 1. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now stop there. Notice Paul begins by saying, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so now also I'm directing you. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, uh, you're sitting at home this week, and Warren Buffett calls you up, and he offers to give you a free counseling session, and he sits down with you, and he says, look, I want you to bring all of your financial records, your bank account, or whatever, and I want you just to open it up before me, and I'm going to direct you what you should do with your money. How many of you would be game for that? So, what we're doing this morning is, is we're actually opening up our lives before God 
And here, uh, God's emissary, one of God's representatives, one of Christ's apostles, is directing us, he is giving us financial advice. And just as you would do well to pay attention to what Warren Buffett says about your finances, you and I would do well to pay attention to what the Apostle Paul says about our finances in this text. I think if we do, we'll find that the use of finances, the way that the Bible tells us to use finances, will bring us a life of fulfillment and meaning and joy. So we're going to be talking together about kind of the directive the direction that, f- that Paul, our uh, financial planner for our purposes this morning, gives to us about our money. Now, of course, the Bible has a lot to say about money, about our resources, and you can kind of divide what the Bible says about money into three main, uh, kind of three main principles. Uh, first, uh, what the Bible says about money is this. The Bible talks first about all of life giving. So when it talks about financial generosity and uh, giving, the Bible speaks to us about what we might call first all of life giving. There's this great uh, story in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. David, King David, gives out of the abundance of his resources, he gives this tremendous financial gift to see the temple built. And after he gives this gift, he is so overcome with joy. And some of you who have given large financial gifts know the joy of giving. And David is there overcome with the joy of giving. And he writes this prayer where he says, God, I thank you. God, I thank you so much. He says, although everything in heaven and on earth belong to you. He says, everything that I have has been given to me by you, O Lord, And yet you have given me this gracious joy of being able to give back to you a portion of what you have given to me. And this is a fundamental principle of giving when it comes to Scripture. It is that all that we have comes to us as a gift from God. All that you have, all that I have, our cars, our homes, our computers, our bank accounts, our retirement, our jobs have come to us as a gift from the hand of God. And so as a gift that has been given to us by God, Jesus says that we have become stewards, not so much owners of our resources as it is stewards. In fact, Jesus told all kinds of parables that point us in this direction. One time he told this story about a a man who was very wealthy and and he gave to a, a group of servants different talents. He gave them different, you know, portions of these talents. And then he goes away on this long trip, and he says, use those talents well while I'm gone, and when I come back, I'm going to hold you to account. And of course, the owner comes back, and he holds the stewards accountable for what they've done with what has been entrusted to them. And the Bible puts us on notice. Jesus puts us on notice, and he says, look, one day I will return, and when I do, I will hold you accountable to everything I have entrusted into your care. In other words, we, we relate to our money the way a money manager relates to an investor. And how does a money manager relate to the investor? Well, the job of the money manager is to invest the resources in line with the values, the priorities, and the principles of the investor and for the investor's sake. And so too, you and I have been entrusted by God, and we are to use the things that God has entrusted us with, those resources, in ways that line up with his own values and priorities and for his glory. 
Now, I know some, for, for some of us, that runs against the grain of what we have been taught, of what we believe about resources, about money. Because many of us will say, look, no, I, I, this is my money. This is my stuff. You know, I have worked hard, you know, through delayed gratification, through savings, through hard work, through ingenuity, through taking risks. I, I have risked, I have saved, and I have worked hard, and I have generated a lot of wealth. This is mine. That's true. But who gave you the energy? Who gave you the opportunities? Who gave you the job in order to allow you to do the things that you have done with the resources that you have? I mean, I guarantee you that if you were born in the bush in Burkina Faso back in the 16th century, you would not have the same resources, the same stuff you have today. You know, as Barry Switzer famously said, some of us are born on third base, but we run around life acting like we hit a triple, right? And so the first way in which the Bible invites us to think about giving is whole life giving. We are stewards, and so we should hold on to everything that's in our care with an open hand. Live with our dinner table and our refrigerator and all the food in it and our homes and our cars and our computers and whatever we have with an open hand recognizing that it is for God's use, for our neighbor's good and for the glory of Jesus. But that's not the kind of giving Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 16. So there's a second kind of giving. So there's all of life giving, but there's secondly, there is giving to the local church. And so in the Old Testament, the precedent was set uh, to give a tithe for the ministry of the temple. And so there was a tenth of the income of Israel was given so that the temple could maintain its ministry. It would uh, fund the priests and their livelihood and the musicians and uh, uh, the maintenance and the building of the the temple and the tabernacle and so on and so forth. And based on that principle, many have taught that for uh, Christians... It is our responsibility to give a tenth of our income in order to sustain and nurture the ministry of a local worshiping community of believers. And Jesus seems to give some uh, impetus to that idea because Jesus at one point, although he doesn't talk much about the tithe, there is one reference in, in Jesus' writings to the tithe. You know what he says? Uh, he, he, he's he's, he's He's confronting the Pharisees because they are tithing all the way down to their their spices, to the little bits of their mint and their, their cumin and their spices. And Jesus says, you are doing that and yet you are neglecting the weightier matters of the law, which is love and justice. And then he says, these you ought to have done. He says, it is good to tithe. And yet he says, uh, but not at the expense of love and justice. And of course, Jesus did teach that those who preach the gospel should make their living by the gospel. Uh, You shall not muzzle an ox while they tread out grain, Jesus said. Let him who is taught share in all good things with him who teaches. This is a very awkward Bible verses for me personally to quote to you all. That was a joke. Help me out, please. But there, there's, there's all of life giving. Everything that we have has been entrusted to us by God, so it belongs to God. It should be used for God and his glory and his kingdom. Secondly, uh, there's giving to the local church. The New Testament speaks about that. But that's actually not what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 16. He's not talking here about all of life giving, though that's important, nor is he talking about giving to the local church. It sounds like that, though, doesn't it? 
because he talks about the collection that should be stored up on the first day of every week. But what I want you to see is that Paul here is actually talking about a third type of giving, and that's giving to the poor. Now look back at the text with me. Look at what it says. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints... He says, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper. Why? So that there's no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, what am I going to do with this? He says, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So here they're storing up resources week by week, and they're collecting it together, and then their gift in this local church is going to be joined together with a variety of churches in the region of Galatia, and then all of that money that is collected in these churches in Asia Minor and Greece is going to be sent down to the church in Jerusalem. Now, that seems incredibly unfair, doesn't it? Why are they gathering up a a bunch of money to send to the church in Jerusalem? Well, the answer is given throughout the New Testament. Actually, Paul speaks about this gathering up of resources that's to be given to the church in Jerusalem in a variety of places in the New Testament. He speaks of it in Romans chapter 15, in Acts chapter 11, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. These are all sections where he's talking about this gift that's going to be given to the church in Jerusalem. Now, why is he giving a gift to the church in Jerusalem? It's because at this time, according to Romans 15, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, the church in Jerusalem was undergoing a tremendous famine. Have you ever seen people who are suffering under famine conditions? A few years ago, I was in Burkina Faso, a little country in West Africa. I I traveled over there with my uncle. We went and we visited a number of churches that he was connected with uh, there in Burkina Faso. And... When we were there, they talked to us about this famine that they were experiencing. All of the pastors and the people in the villages and the bush, they were subsistence farmers. In other words, they fed themselves and their children by farming the little plot of land that they had. And so they were at the mercy of the elements. And so if there was a season where there was a lack of rain, they would experience famine and hunger, and many of them would die of easily preventable diseases and for lack of bread. And uh, so I went home, and we did at our church this big campaign called Walk for Grain. We raised a bunch of money, and we came back to Burkina Faso, and we bought a ton of grain in country, and we had it delivered to the churches and the villages that were suffering under these famine conditions. I will never forget the day we went down to the local marketplace, though, to buy the grain. We were there getting these bags of grain to share with these people who are suffering famine, and there was this elderly woman hunched over, walking towards us, and then going down on her knees to put into her hand the little bits of grain that had fallen from the sacks of grain onto the dirt. And this was how she was going to feed herself. People in desperate straits do desperate things. And this was the church in Jerusalem. They were suffering under very desperate famine conditions. And Paul sees this. And he goes to the churches throughout Asia Minor and in Galatia, and he garners together this large gift in order to buy food to feed the church in Jerusalem to provide crisis 
famine relief. So that's what Paul is talking about here. Now, I want to just make a few observations, though, about what kind of interesting things, really, about this collection that Paul is making to provide food for the churches who are suffering in famine in in, in Jerusalem. And the first observation that I have about uh, this collection and about this gift is that, number one, it is a gift that is marked by financial accountability. It's a gift that is marked by financial accountability. And look how Paul puts it at the end of the, the section. He says this. He talks about this gift. He says he's going to send it to Jerusalem. And then he says this. I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So he says, look, I'm not asking you to gather up a bunch of money, give it to me, and then have me take it down there without any accountability. Instead, he says, I'm asking you to provide people from, your, from among you who are accredited by a written letter for their integrity, for their financial management, for their ability to handle gifts well. And he says, gather that together. And then he says, have those guys take the gift down to Jerusalem. And then he says, and if it seems advisable that I should go also, then uh, they will accompany me. So first, it's a gift that's marked by financial responsibility. Secondly, I want you to note that it's a gift that is marked by both discipline and planning. It is giving that is both disciplined and planned. It's not haphazard. It is not guilt-induced. You know, Paul does not go to these churches and show them uh, pictures of bloated children in Jerusalem. Instead, he says, look, I'm not looking for a one-time response. I am inviting you into a way of life where you make space in your budget for the poor. And look how he puts it. He says, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up on the first day of the week. This is disciplined. This is habitual. This is creating space in your budget for the poor. Or as uh, one author put it, he said it like this. He says, there is to be no last-minute superficial scraping around for funds as an unplanned, off-the-cuff gesture. Still less is it to depend on Paul's own personal plea to the wealthy as an emergency. Rather, each is to play his or her part in a planned strategy of regular giving in response to God's blessing and his financial provision for the benefit of those who are suffering from deeper poverty. Third observation, not only is it marked by financial accountability and discipline and planning, but thirdly, Paul expects full participation. Notice what it says back in the text. This is interesting to me. He doesn't simply appeal to the wealthy in the churches. No, he says, each of you. Do you see that in the text? Each of you is to put something aside. Now, not everyone is going to put the same amount aside because, of course, not all of you have the same amounts, right? And so Paul says, each of you should put something aside as he may prosper. And so he says, look, as the Lord has blessed you, let that be a reflection in how you are going to bless and give to others. And so it's not just for a few select wealthy patrons, but this is an all-in thing. Paul is calling for the whole church to participate, each of them. In other words, each Christian is to make space in their life for the poor. And then fourthly, I want you to see that it is a call to collective action. 
Do you ever find yourself looking at the situation in our world right now globally? Maybe even just locally, you drive downtown into LA and you think, what on earth can any one person do? You feel helpless in, faith, in the face of the enormity of the problem of homelessness and of world poverty and of all of that. But of course, it is not up to us individually to meet the whole need. Paul actually is calling for collective action. Notice he invites them to participate together, not just themselves and not just with the local church, but in conjunction with all of the churches of Galatia. Mother Teresa once said, we feel we are just a drop in the ocean, but the ocean would be less because of that missing drop. And so each of us has something to contribute, and when we contribute together, enough drops will make up a pool, and enough pools will make up an ocean, and an ocean can begin to address problems. And did you know, it's, I don't know how many of you study this stuff, but just in the last two decades, extreme poverty around the globe has been cut by enormous percentages. There's been incredible work done by organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and, of course, World Vision and Compassion International to, to work among the poorest of these and to address real needs. And when collective action comes together, it can actually address real problems. And do you see, that's what Paul is calling for here. He's calling for collective action so that they can address a real problem. Fifth observation I have from this text is that this call to provide support for the churches in Jerusalem, to care for the poor, was central to Paul's ministry. You know, this is a little section in the book of Galatians where Paul is giving personal testimony to his call into gospel ministry. So, of course, Paul was this remarkable church planter and theological thinker and author, and he was the, in many ways, he was the architect of the spread and the growth of the early Christian movement. I mean, Paul was this remarkable evangelist and church planter, but he was also an incredible philanthropist, and it was core to his work in the gospel. In fact, he says this, he, in Galatians, he reflects back on his call into ministry, and he says this, and when James and Cephas, or Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. In other words, in the same way that Peter, James, and John were given this great commission by Jesus to go preach the gospel among the Jews in Jerusalem, Samaria, they, he said, I was given this great commission to go out among the Gentiles and to bring the gospel to the pagan world. But, he said, only they asked us to remember the poor. At the very heart of your gospel ministry, said the apostles, remember the poor. Which Paul says, that was the very thing that I was eager to do. <laughs> I like that. And so this was central to Paul's ministry. And listen, it is central to gospel ministry. Care for the poor and preaching the good news about Jesus go hand in hand. They're absolutely inseparable. This is, all, this is seen all throughout the New Testament. So now I just want to stand back and I want to say, what, what do we gain from this passage? Like, what is it, what is the word? What's the directive? You sit down with Paul as your financial planner, and he sits down with you and says, let me just open up the books. Let me give you a directive. Here it is. 
He would say, in essence, God entrusts us with riches so that we can share them with those in need. Or as Paul would later say in Timothy, as for the rich in this present age, command them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And they are to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. In other words, God has entrusted you and I with resources in order that we might share those resources with others. God has given us abundance so that we might share out of our abundance to those in lack. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed. He's not saying, look, you know, some of you might be in a place where you are at the end of your financial rope and you are struggling And Paul says, look, I don't give you this word in order to beat those people up, but rather, he says, that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. And the goal is equality. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. He longs for those who have abundance to, to, out of their abundance, to, to resource those who have lack. And of course, this is grounded in God's own desire for his creation. God does not desire a world, and when the kingdom of God is established, there will not be a world where there's this great disparity between the rich and the poor, between the haves and the have-nots. Or as Dr. King once said, God never intended for one group of people to live in superfluous, inordinate wealth, while others live in abject, deadening poverty. So friends, God entrusts us with riches so that we might use those riches in order to bless and to supply those who are in need. And friends, this is not unique to this passage of Scripture. We are tying into something here. This principle goes all throughout the entire biblical story. You know, even a cursory reading of the Bible will reveal God's tremendous heart for the poor and those who are in need. And so, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, God gives these commands to the nation of Israel. And there's this law that says you could glean your fields. If you had big fields and you could glean them, but you couldn't glean the fields to the edges because the edges were to be left for the poor so they can have something to eat. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, it speaks of this thing called the year of Jubilee, where all of those who maybe through bad financial planning, maybe through poor decisions or through laziness or whatever, have lost their land. In other words, their means of production, their means of feeding their family. When they've lost it, on the year of Jubilee, the land, no matter how stupid you've been, no matter if it was five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, you would get the land back Because God's desire, according to Deuteronomy, is, quote, that there would be no poor among you. Deuteronomy 15, God says this, if there is a poor man among you, you shall not harden your heart or close your hand, but open up your heart and open up your hands to your brothers. In fact, God puts it like this in Proverbs chapter 14. He says this, if you insult the poor... God so identifies with the poor that he says, if you insult the poor, you insult me. And then in Proverbs 19, he says, if you give to the poor, you give to the Lord. 
Or as Jesus himself later would say in Matthew 25, he, 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 he talks there about the day of judgment. And he says that the day is coming when the Lord will have all of us standing in front of him. And on one side, he'll set, those, he'll set the saved, and on the other side, he'll set those who are lost. And this is what he will say to the lost. He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they said, what do you mean you didn't know us? And he says, I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you did not give me to drink. I was lonely and in prison and you did not visit me. And Jesus says, what you did not do for them, you were not doing for me. He says, if you don't love the poor, if you don't love the hungry and the naked and the poor wanderer and the homeless, if you don't love them, then no matter what you say, no matter how aggressive your Bible study is, no matter how often you go to church, it's an indicator that you may not have a relationship with God. The way you treat the poor is reflective of your heart to God. Tim Keller put it like this. He said, a deep social conscience and a life poured out in service to others, especially the poor, is the inevitable sign of real faith and of a real connection with God. Now, it may come slowly. It may come over time. Some of us, we stumble along the way and we have fits and starts and we give a little bit more and then we withdraw and then we're convicted and we give, we kind of move out. But, but it will be growing. It will be, there will be something happening there if you have a real connection with God. Because those who care about the Lord care about the poor. Now, maybe right now, how are you feeling right now? How are you feeling on the guiltometer? <laughs> I think there's a variety of reasons why many of us struggle with this. I know some of you are models of this, and you do stuff that none of us know about. And if we opened up your life and your checkbook, we would all find you as a model for the rest of us. And we need you in here. We need models of generosity, people who risk, people who, who take steps of faith and show us all how to do it. But I think there's a lot of us in here for, for whom maybe we just feel like, yeah, I, I'm, this is not a part of my life. And there's different reasons for that. Maybe for some of us, it's just out of sight, out of mind. It's easy to get so kind of preoccupied with our own lives and our children and our grandchildren and our school and uh, the next assignment that's due and we just keep going on in life that we just kind of pull ourselves out of the real needs around us, out of sight, out of mind. Now, but, but others of us, we have our, our questions and our objections. We think, well, you know, what about, what about when my helping hurts? How do you know that by giving, you're not just enabling people's irresponsible behavior? And you know, you talk about giving globally and to meet world needs, but there's so much corruption in so many of these governments, and how can we be sure that the money we sent gets to the hands of those who need it most? How do we know that we're not trapping people in the developing world into systems of dependence, you know, dependent upon the gifts of the West? You know, people's dignity is affirmed when they can pay their own way and they're empowered when they can take care of themselves. And so shouldn't we just help people participate in the economy and we should participate in the economy and go out and buy more products because that's going to further fuel the economy? Yes. That's all you need to do today is just go out and shop more. 
That was what you were hoping for, right? (laughs) Of course, all of those objections are true. It is true that giving often hurts. Uh, Your helping can actually enable people's own dysfunctional behavior. You can give money to somebody on the street, and they take that money and they go buy drugs or alcohol to feed their own addictions. And of course, there is giving to corrupt governments that doesn't get into the hands of the people who need it most. But friends, listen, that is a terrible excuse not to give in the 21st century. There are way, way too many organizations that have financial integrity, that have engaged in best practices, and there are ways your dollars can travel to actually help people in very real ways, and you don't even have to doubt whether or not it's going to get to the people who need it most. I was talking to a friend of mine back in Albuquerque, and she was a professor at the UNM, or at, the, um, at UNM, University of New Mexico, in economic development. And I went up and asked her after one of these sermons that I was preaching on this topic, I said, hey, um, what is the best way, like return on investment, you know, ROI? What's the best, like what's the best way to care for the poor? You know what she said? Compassion International. She said, you know, Compassion International has opened their books up, their whole organization up, to external study by universities and to have those results published in peer-reviewed journals. And she said, that reveals, she says, as you are studying this stuff, she says, it reveals they are incredibly effective at their work. If you want to pull children out of poverty, if you want to see hungry bellies fed, Compassion International is a great way to do it. There's another organization that um, is connected with this church. It's uh, called For the Boys. This is a picture of uh, kind of a little event that they put on. So For the Boys was an organization that was put, uh, that was uh, started by Athlete Sapp, Justin Sapp's wife. Right, Justin? And Athlete started this organization after doing an incredible amount of academic research for her master's program. And she was tracking, like, what is the source of the problem of of boys who are at risk on the streets in the slums in uh, Nairobi? And so she came up with a strategy, a plan to address those needs that was based on the highest levels of research. And she started this program. And this is a great picture because um, what the program does is it connects boys with mentors in country These are boys who've lost fathers, who are addicted to glue, who have no hope, and yet they get connected with a mentor, and it makes all of the difference in the world. And last year, some of you actually gave money to support for the boys and to send some of these boys to camp, and it's making a tremendous difference in real people's lives. So that's for the boys. And of course, there's in our own backyard, there's the Union Rescue Mission, which is doing incredible work to address the tremendous, this enormous problem of homelessness in our own backyard. And friends, do you realize Union Rescue Mission is doing wise and and well-practiced work to help educate and clothe and feed and get people off of a system of dependence and into systems of sustainable living where they can have a place to live and a job and be off drugs. And Union Rescue Mission is doing that again and again and again with individuals. And when you give generously to these organizations, you are supporting this work and it's actually helping people.
you know, my hope, kind of at the end of this whole thing, sometimes, you know, when you're preaching a sermon, you ask, like, what's, what's, what, are you, what are you trying to accomplish through this whole thing? Like, what's the end? I Forget for a moment about my end. Something I am absolutely confident of is that God's desire is for us who live in abundance to share with those in need. God's desire for sure is for us to make space in our budgets and in our lives to remember the poor, to be eager, even as the apostle Paul was, to remember the poor. And there are so many opportunities, so many great ways that you and I can get engaged in doing just that. But listen, the thing that will really create a sustainable practice and discipline where we make space to give to the poor is not guilt. It is not uh, pictures of people in need. That might be enough to move you for a moment. But it takes more than guilt to move us into sustainable, lifelong action. It doesn't take guilt, it takes grace. It takes the grace of the God who in Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes and mine, he became poor. Why are you here this morning? It is because the true and living God embraced poverty in Jesus Christ so that through his poverty, you might know the riches of God so that you might be connected with the kingdom of God and the glory of God. And those who allow that good news to sink down into their hearts that you and I are a needy, broken people and God's abundance has met our lack and our need that we move out into the world as people who out of love and out of grace engage in a life where we're sharing our abundance with those in need for the glory of God and for your own joy and fulfillment in life.